Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Begin transmission in three, two, one. This is Naked Astronomy. Each month, I strip down interesting developments in the world of space. In a quest to find out what's really going on out there. Hello, beautiful astronomers. Today, we're getting pumped for Monday, May 9th, because, because, because it's the Mercury transit. Woohoo! So listen up to hear how to watch it. We don't want any blindness as a result of naked astronomy. And to hear why these events were so important in the olden days as well as today's. I'm Greer Jackson, and this, of course, is Naked Astronomy. First on our panel of pundits is Professor David Rothery, planetary scientist and general superstar science communicator at the Open University. He's especially good with questions like, what the heck is a transit and why is that exciting? A transit is when one of the two planets closer to the Sun than the Earth passes directly between the Sun and the Earth and then we see the planet silhouetted as a tiny black dot against the Sun's disk. Why is that exciting? Well, particularly for Mercury, where I'm working on a space mission to Mercury. It's my planet, and it's very hard to see in the evening or morning sky. It's always so close to the sun. And when it's in front of the sun, transiting it, you can't miss it if you've got the right equipment to look at it. And it's a little bit of a thrill to see this. It doesn't happen very often. How often does it happen? Well, the last one was in November 2006, but it started just before sunset in the UK, so we didn't get much of a chance to see it. Before that, it was May 2003, and it was very early in the morning. But this one on, on Monday, May the 9th, is perfect timing for us because it starts just after midday, 12.12 BST, and finishes at 19.42 BST. So if there are no clouds, we'll see the whole of it. So it means you don't have to get up too early and, alas, dress up nice and warm. <laughs> it's May in Britain it'll be sunny there'll be a few fluffy clouds blue sky and a nice sun but we've got to say this you should not look at the sun without proper gear to see this it's too tiny to see with the unaided eye anyway it's 150th the solar diameter when it's sitting in front of the sun you need a magnified image and what you mustn't do is, is try binoculars or a telescope anything like that you have to project an image onto a card or use a proper solar filter in front of a telescope to cut the light out or go to an event. There are lots of events that you can find or just stay at home and look at it on the internet. I mean, I think I'd rather see it in the flash, even if it is indirectly. You can, of course, find out whether there are events near you. Head to nakedscientists.com slash mercurytransit. But if you're not lucky enough to have some mercury display somewhere on your doorstep... All is not lost. 
Okay, well, this is what I used to do when I was a lad. You focus your telescope on some distant trees or something just to get it into focus. Then you swing it round till it's pointed at the sun, but you do not look through the eyepiece. You hold a white card a couple of feet behind the eyepiece of a telescope and you will see a projected image of the sun. But don't look through it because you'll burn your eyes out. It's very, very dangerous. Okay. I'll be well behaved. Don't you worry, David. And I presume on the projected card you see the sun, but then you also see Mercury transiting across the sun, like maybe like a dark patch or something? The, the Mercury will be a tiny black dot. I mean, if the sun's image is six centimetres across, Mercury will be half a millimetre. So it's it's tiny. Wow. Okay, so it might be quite tricky to see in that case. Look carefully, but it will be there. (laughs) Okay. And now you said you study Mercury and you're particularly excited about this transit because it means you'll be able to see it at a more sociable hour. But how much can you really tell? The transit isn't actually useful to us scientifically uh, these days. Um, There's nothing we can learn from Mercury by watching it transit, but it's just nice to see the planet doing it. I agree, but just because it isn't so scientifically important these days doesn't mean that it wasn't once. Venus was the first transit observed in 1639, just outside Manchester, by a chap called Jeremiah Horrocks. What I like about Jeremy's story is that in those days, there wasn't a specialised astronomical telescope market. Funny that. And so stargazers had to build their own. Jeremiah's father and uncles were watchmakers, and as a result, well-practised in the art of precision instruments. Thus, by day he worked for them, and in return, they helped him build the best telescope they could. And it was with a watchmaker's telescope that he indirectly observed Venus transit across the sun using the method that David described before. Now let's get to why this is important, though. Skip forward 50 years or so and Edmund Halley publishes a paper describing how, if you can observe a transit from multiple places on Earth, you can, using triangulation, work out how far the Sun is from the Earth. This is now known as the astronomical unit. It's important because... Cast yourself back to the 17th century. We did not know how big the solar system was. It it was late in the 16th, early in the 17th century, when opinion was swinging away from the old view of the solar system, which had everything going around the Earth, to accepting what Copernicus had said, is that, look, the sun's in the middle, everything else goes around the sun. And once that was realised, it became important to realise, well, to work out, well, how big is all this? I mean, you want to know how far away things are. Halley died 19 years before the Mercury transit in 1942, but naturalists from France, Austria and Britain were packed off on various expeditions far and wide across the world to observe the rare phenomenon. They went as far as Siberia, Norway, Newfoundland and Madagascar. 
All this wasn't underpinned by our quest to understand the size of the universe, though. It was good old-fashioned competition. Indeed, that's why Captain James Cook was packed off to Tahiti on his first world tour. Their findings? Well, what was reported in the journal Philosophical Transitions was the mean distance from the Earth to the Sun is 93,726,900 English miles. We now know today that it's 92,955,000 miles. That means they were off by just 0.008%. And that's pretty remarkable, really, considering this was the mid-1700s. So this was a step towards realising the scale of the universe, which is vast. Back then, it was transiting planets in our solar system. But now scientists watch exoplanets transits. That's planets orbiting around other stars. And it turns out you can tell quite a lot more than just how far away they are. Now, many exoplanets that we're observing are in very close orbits around their stars. So they travel faster and um, a transit may last uh, a matter of minutes or an hour or so, but it's, it's certainly never as quick as being over in just seconds. OK, but what I was keen to know was, what can you find out about a transiting exoplanet in that short window of time? Measuring transits is a way of time in the orbits of, of planets around other stars and measuring their size. So you can have a go at working out their density and what their properties might be. But to actually measure something... The thing you can really measure is, is a planet's atmosphere. If it has a dense atmosphere, the starlight shining through the atmosphere will be affected by that atmosphere. So you'll just get faint lines superimposed on the spectrum of the star corresponding to the gases in that planet's atmosphere. So it's a very, very careful, subtle observation just looking at how the quality of the starlight changes when the planet's in front of it. So the starlight dims because the planet's blotting out a tiny portion of the star's disk and the light that gets to you, a tiny fraction of that, is shining through the planet's atmosphere. So it's spectroscopy looking at spectral lines. My name's Carol Haswell. I'm an astrophysicist at the Open University where I do research on exoplanets. And Carol uses this transiting method that David is talking about to study exoplanets. But what really amazed me about Carol was that when she heard of a particular transiting exoplanet, it literally changed the course of her life. As a very young child, I knew that I wanted to be an astronomer. And like many young people, I thought that I wanted to do cosmology just because that seemed like the ultimate thing to do. And then I think as I got older and actually started studying at university, then I realised that actually cosmology seemed to me to be a little bit abstract and removed from things that I could identify with. And so at that point I decided that I wanted to work instead on things closer to home. So I in fact started my research career um, still doing something that's quite far out. Um, I was working on accretion um, around black hole binary star systems. And I did enjoy that. But in about, I think it was 2003, I saw a paper which had observed an exoplanet using the Hubble Space Telescope. And when a planet passes in front of 
a star from our point of view. It blocks, say, 1% of the light from the star and produces a very subtle dip every time it goes around the orbit. But this particular paper, they had used the Hubble Space Telescope to look in the ultraviolet, and they had seen, instead of a 1%, very subtle dip, a 15% diminishing in the light from the star. And this told us that the planet was actually surrounded by a huge cloud of hydrogen. And at that point, I just thought, this is just too exciting, and exoplanets are, are the way to go. I mean, obviously, it had a profound sort of um, importance for you, but what was the importance of that discovery more generally in, in the scientific community, I'm thinking? What that paved the way for was the whole field of being able to actually assess the chemical composition of exoplanets. So here you have a planet orbiting a distant star, and because the planet is surrounded by some gas, which is translucent, the gas is made up of atoms and ions which absorb light at particular wavelengths, I think of it like looking at a rainbow. Whilst hydrogen may block one frequency of light, red, let's say, methane might block green. So you have a rainbow or a spectrum of light that might go mm, and yellow and pink and mm, purple and orange and blue. And by looking at what colours are missing, you can work out what elements are found in the atmosphere of this extremely distant planet. So cool. So it really opened the field for being able to actually measure what planets outside our own solar system are made of, or at least what their atmospheres and the surrounding gas cloud is made of. What I find absolutely insane is that these exoplanets are a long, long way away. I mean, how far are we talking in light years? Well, the very, very closest star is about four light years away. And obviously, most stars are very much further away than that, you know, hundreds or more light years away. So the transit method has found thousands of planets or planet candidates. Not all of them have been completely verified, but it's been extremely successful at finding planets. And like David's DIY to watching the Mercury transit, Carol also has a similar attitude. There have been missions, uh, projects like SuperWASP, which is a UK project which um, I and many of my colleagues were involved in, which actually used very, very cheap equipment. Some of it I actually bought on eBay. No, really? Yeah, so because it's a fairly simple measurement just to measure the brightness of the star, we were able to use camera lenses that had actually been designed for doing things like theatre photography we put them on a telescope mount and pointed them to the to the sky and used those to measure the brightness of thousands of stars over and over again. And the SuperWASP project has now discovered, I think, about 150 or 160 planets using that very modest equipment. Something else to try at home then, guys. Perhaps you can even name an exoplanet after yourself. Anyway, back to the rainbow stuff. What actual elements have been discovered so far? OK, so there's been quite a number of elements detected and the other early discoveries that I should mention was the detection of sodium in the atmosphere of the very first known transiting exoplanet and there have been many many more discoveries including things as heavy as as iron. 
And I'm sure Carol would agree, there are probably many more elements to be discovered when it comes to exoplanets. It's interesting, but it's interesting in the same way taking personality tests are interesting. They kind of tell you something you already know about yourself, but it's kind of reaffirming. In this month's Naked Genetics podcast, as the costs of DNA analysis come down, we've seen the rise of home genetic testing. But what do these tests actually reveal? Plus, digging up dog genomes and our gene of the month is totally legless. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. Here on Naked Astronomy, I've been on a mission to find out what makes scientists so excited about transiting planets in our own solar system and ones far away. David identified the historical importance, the astronomical unit, and Carol made a good point for all these elements that we can now detect in their atmospheres. But what's the point? These exoplanets are so far away. Why do we care what's circulating in their atmospheres? It's important because these gases and elements and these sorts of things give us an idea of whether the planet might support life to begin with. That's Patrick Short. He's a PhD student based at the Sanger Institute. I met him because he competed in a science communication event called FameLab, where applicants have to get on stage and give a talk about something they feel passionate about. Patrick's topic? The quest to find extraterrestrials. And then also it could provide clues of whether life actually exists. So methane, for instance, is produced by most living things here on Earth. So if we see a planet with a huge methane signature, then it's probably a pretty good place to search. What are the chances there is actually life out there? I mean, I know thousands of exoplanets have been discovered, but really, is it likely that life is out there in the first place? Yeah, it's it's an important question, actually, one that has vexed a lot of people for a long time. I, so there have been some attempts to quantify this. The, one, one of the big detractions or criticisms, I guess, is that there are just so many unknowns that it's really hard to put a firm yes or no or even a, a probability of life in our galaxy or in other galaxies somewhere else in the universe. But there have been quite a few pretty valiant stabs at it. So the most famous one was by Dr. Frank Drake, and he actually... He didn't intend it to really be his legacy or to be sort of the the thing that he was remembered for. It was basically intended to drum up conversation at a conference. And the idea was basically to sort of try to put a rough back-of-the-envelope calculation on what is the probability that we find life somewhere in our galaxy. At this stage, I think it would be a really good idea to go through Drake's equation to sort of understand a bit more about what these sort of limitations are there. So what is the first item in the equation? Yeah, so the first item in the equation is the rate of star formation in the galaxy. So they express this in terms of number of stars per year. So the, the Milky Way is about 13 billion years old, and Drake puts his first estimate at one star per year. So that's the first step. Okay, so 13 billion. Let's write that down. Yeah. So this would be N N star, I guess. Okay. What next? Uh, So next is what proportion of these stars have planets around them. So not all stars have planets. And Drake put this at somewhere between one-fifth and one-half. And then we've also got the number of planets per star. So given that it's got a planet, how many does it have in general? Um, And he puts this at somewhere between one and five. Given that you've got a star that's got planets, we'll assume conservatively that it's got one planet, and we'll 
assume aggressively that it's got five habitable planets per star. And when we're talking habitable, we mean the right sort of temperature. Yeah, temperature. It's got an atmosphere. Exactly. Um, it doesn't spin too fast or yeah. spin too slowly. All these types of things that are needed for, for life. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Next term. So we've got number of stars and then how many habitable planets around those stars. So what's yeah. next after that? Then we've got the probability that a habitable planet will result in life. So I I guess you can consider it sort of the probability that given all the right conditions defined by habitable planet, that life will arise on that planet. And Drake puts that at one. So he's quite an optimist. He says, if we've got a star with a habitable planet, then life will arise on that planet. And then this follows quite closely by the second term, which is the probability that that life will develop into intelligent life, which Drake also puts at one. So he thinks that it's inevitable that if life is created, it follows to intelligent lives. After this, there's still more, isn't there? Yeah, so there's there's then the probability that they develop communication skills. So Drake was specifically interested in looking for civilizations that would have made contact with us or that we could make contact with. And he puts their probability of developing communications at between a tenth and a fifth, so... Not point one and not point two. Okay, communications. Surely that's the final one. No, so we've actually got one more. So he Drake has factored in exactly how long these communications will last. So we've been doing our search for extraterrestrial intelligence, listening, not broadcasting, but only for a few decades. So uh, he places his lower bound and his upper bound on between somewhere between 1,000 and 100 million years okay so if we take this equation and we do the conservative estimate what do we get yeah so the conservative estimate which is 13 billion stars one-fifth of which have planets one of which is habitable and which we develop life 100 percent of the time intelligent life another 100 percent of the time 10% of the time they develop communication tools and they only use these communication tools for a thousand years, then Drake estimates that we would actually have only about 20 habitable planets in our galaxy, which is the Milky Way. That doesn't seem like very many. What about on the other end of the spectrum? Yes, on the the other end of the spectrum, if you want to go with Drake's sort of most optimistic estimates, then Drake arrives at a maximum of 50 million intelligent species within our galaxy. And again, that's just within the Milky Way. So we've got another 100 billion of these galaxies out there. So even if we pick Drake's low assessment, which is 20, then we've got on the order of 2 trillion intelligent species that we could get in contact with. I mean, that sounds incredibly high. So why the heck have we not been able to make contact with any of these civilizations, or indeed they make contact with us? Yeah, so that opens up a whole other uh, famous chapter of physics history. So the, so this question was asked by Enrico Fermi, so he's a physicist, and uh, I think the exact terminology he uses, it, if this is the case, then where is everybody? And his point being that if we accept that somewhere between this conservative and aggressive estimate of the amount of life out there, that surely either we should have heard somebody detected something or 
uh, had somebody get in contact with us. Uh, and especially sort of the extra layer of evidence is that we're actually somewhat young in terms of the history of the universe, right? So if we, if we can imagine our society fast-forwarding just a, a few hundred million years, then we should most certainly be able to colonize the galaxy and and do sort of all these sort of intergalactic travels and and uh, certainly communication. But the fact of the matter is, we haven't heard from anybody. And so the paradox here is, if we can accept that the universe is teeming with life, then what are the possible explanations for why we haven't heard from anybody? And there's there's quite a few interesting ones, I think. Like what? Yeah, one of my favorites is this idea that if we consider ourselves young in terms of the intelligent life sort of spectrum, then any other intelligent life out there that was older than us may be so incredibly advanced and more developed than us that they don't actually even consider us to be intelligent life. Think of our relationship with ants that communicate with scent. And we really don't spend a lot of time sort of trying to devise scent systems to communicate with the ants. And then there's, there's other sort of more... I guess, practical considerations that maybe some of these estimates are off and there is life out there, but it's so far spread out that the physical limitations of the universe make it impossible for us to communicate with one another in any sort of practical amount of time. Or maybe they've tried to communicate with us, but it's still on its way, right? So it's just being sent across the universe at light speed and maybe someday uh, we'll hear it. I suppose we could speculate all day on the possibilities, but Fermi's problem still stands. Where is everybody? And then that sort of makes me ask, well, why are we bothering anyway? Sat in the sun with Patrick in the park, with kids mucking about on the swings, I realised that one of the things we enjoy the most, and I suppose what makes us fundamentally human, is that interaction with others. And combine that with our curiosity, well then, the search for life elsewhere in the universe, despite all its improbabilities, is still worth it. Yeah, I'm very, I'm very optimistic. I mean, I, I would be thrilled if we found life somewhere else. I think it would be super exciting. I, I don't know, I guess, I guess we'll just have to wait and see, but who knows. Many thanks to all my guests this week. That was David Rothery. Carol Haswell and Patrick Short. The music you heard was from Clank Bleed and You Air Zero One. You can find links to those on our website, nakedscientist.com. The theme tune was designed by the wonderful Anthony Baggett, and a sound design and production was done by me, Greer Jackson. And if you enjoyed listening, it would be great if you could help spread the word about naked astronomy. Rate it on iTunes, write a comment, or tweet about it new hashtag is naked astronomy by the way and um, that would be so appreciated thank you so much and of course don't forget to put may 9th in your diary to watch the mercury transit i'll see you next time <laughs>